0: You know, one of the, the great mysteries of life has to be why God appears to favour one and ignore another. Why is it that one family seems to experience the blessing of God and another, when you look at everything that's happened to them over many years, you'd almost have to say, there seems to be almost be a curse upon this, this family. Why does God allow... One person to be healed and another to die. Why is one child born in Sydney, Australia, and another child is born into extreme poverty in a slum in India? Why does allow God allow one person to be healed and another to die? There doesn't appear to be any difference between the way they they live their lives and and yet that's the reality of what happens. One person is healed and another isn't. Oh, we, we really worked that through when, when uh, Craig Williams was diagnosed with brain cancer the same week that my wife, Louise, was diagnosed with a brain tumour. And uh, Craig went through five years of, of what I can only imagine was a hellish existence where he was, he was there inside but couldn't, couldn't do anything else. And yet Louise was healed. You say, why? Why is that the way things have panned out? Well, today as we continue our journey through this book of Acts, we're going to look at one of these rather unsettling situations which have confused believers for centuries, and I guess which still do. We're going to look at the story of the execution of James and the miraculous escape of Peter from prison. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 12 and see what God has to say to us from his word. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 says, About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. And when Herod saw how much displeased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. Now, the name Herod seems to appear quite a few times throughout the, throughout the Bible. Now, you need to realise this is the same family but it's certainly not the same individual. Herod the Great murdered the baby boys of Bethlehem when he heard about the birth of Christ. Herod Antipas, he was, he was involved in Jesus' trial and he also had John the, he- the, John the Baptist beheaded. Um, but Herod Agrippa, grandson of Herod the Great, is who we're dealing with here. This Herod spent a number of years in Rome as a young man, basically being raised with, with two guys who would ultimately both end up becoming emperors of Rome. And as a result, Herod Agrippa was given an increasingly large territory to rule and he was particularly keen to please the local Jewish authorities because that meant peace in his part of the world. So when he arrested the Apostle James and had him beheaded, he noticed that this really pleased the Jews. So he went and had another Apostle, Peter, imprisoned. Herod had planned a very public trial and an execution of Peter he needed to wait for the Passover festival to finish because that would have really upset the Jews if he did something during the Passover. So James became the first of the apostles to be martyred. He certainly wasn't the first Christian to be martyred, but he was the first of the the disciples, the apostles, to be martyred. And During the, the week, I was thinking about James' death and particularly in the light of Jesus' words found in Matthew 20. Do you remember the situation? James and John... And with their mother had asked for thrones. Now, it seems that James and John were probably first cousins of Jesus. So I can imagine why you know, his aunt came and said, hey, do you think, do you think that they might, when you, come, when you rule on high, when you come into your, you know, your rule, do you think my boys could sit either side of you, have a throne either side of you? Have a look at what Jesus said to them. It's Matthew 20 verse 22. But Jesus answered by saying to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Oh yes, they replied, we are able. And Jesus told them, You will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right and on my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Jesus then went on to say, Whoever wants to be great Must be the servant of all. And whoever wants to be first must become a slave. See, of course, James and John had no idea what they were asking for or saying, but they would eventually discover the high cost of winning a throne of glory. I just want to say to you this morning there's no glory without suffering. Ultimately, there's no lasting glory without suffering. Jesus calls us all to take up our cross and follow him into a life of suffering. And it's only there you will find true life. You know, people try to to make that, that idea of taking up my cross, they try to make it into all sorts of things. But in the first century, when someone spoke about a cross, it meant one thing. It meant brutal, shame, embarrassment, disgrace, Pain, suffering, death. That's what it meant when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said these words to his followers. Followers, If anyone, any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. That is hard teaching, isn't it? It really is. What did Jesus mean when he said, take up your cross, if he wasn't referring to suffering? What did Jesus mean when he said to James and John, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup? Now, I don't want to zoom past this verse where we learn that James is martyred. It's easy to do that. I want us to pause and think about this because the scriptures wrap the words of Jesus when he made his prophetic statement about how James would die with words about suffering and service and becoming a slave. So I want to ask you this morning, is there a movement in your life? Is there a movement in your life towards greater comfort and prosperity or is there a movement towards greater service, greater sacrifice and as a result, more suffering, more hardship, more giving of yourself for others? Now, last week during the message, I prayed that we, might, that we might pray, Lord, less of me and more of you. And as that prayer, less of me and more of you, was lived out in the lives of the apostles and of those in the early church, the movement of their life was away from security. If you actually look at what we have revealed there in the text, it was away from security. It was away from comfort. It was away from prosperity. And it was a movement towards greater service, greater giving, and for virtually all of the apostles, martyrdom. That's where it went. And as they did that, as they lived like that, people called them Christians. Because they lived like Christ. And time and time again we read in the book of Acts, meanwhile the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. Of the apostles, James would die first at the hands of Herod and amazingly his brother John would die last. Kind of bookends. He would die last, exiled on the island of Patmos, Patmos a prisoner a Rome. In my study, I came across a comment by Clement of Alexandria who lived in the second century. Now, we don't know if this is true. We don't know if this is true. We have no way of knowing, but we know that he wrote this about the death of James at the hand of Herod. Clement of Alexandria records that the man who betrayed James to Herod was so touched by his testimony during his trial that he gave his life to Christ. And was subsequently condemned with James for being a Christ follower. And on the way to the execution, he asked James for forgiveness. And James replied, be at peace. And they died together. Why did God allow James to die so early and his brother John to live on for so long? Why did God allow James to die and for Peter to then be miraculously freed as we will read on about today? Well, the answer lies in the sovereignty of God. And let me tell you, we may never, ever find answers to those questions. We might get a glimpse, but we won't find an answer to those questions until glory. And I don't even know then if we'll find an answer. I hope we do. But we can know this. Your days are numbered by the Lord. Your days are numbered by the Lord. For each of us, the Lord allots a particular number of days. And after that, there are no days left on this earth. So when somebody says, and we all feel it, don't we? We feel it when someone dies when they're 20 or when they're you know, 35. We'll say, oh, his life was cut short. His life was cut short and, and you know, it was so wrong. But you know, The word of God actually teaches us that, no, his life wasn't cut short. There was no more days. There were no more days for that person. We read in Job 14 these words. This is Job speaking to God. And what's interesting is that this, this book, the book of Job, is believed by scholars because of the ancient na- nature of the Hebrew that it's written in to be the earliest of all the texts in the Bible. It might be easy to think, oh, but surely Genesis was before this. No, no. Think about it, Genesis wasn't written until after they left Egypt, because that's in Genesis. Now this is this is the oldest text that we have in the Bible. It says, You have decided the length of our lives. You know how many months we will live and get the last bit. This last bit. And we are not given a minute longer. We're not given a moment longer. No one's life is cut short. It may seem as though it is, but the Lord numbers your days. And whilst that raises a great many questions, it also can give us great peace. You will not die before your allotted allotted time because the Lord holds your days in his hand. That is a wonderful truth to hang on to, is it not? The Lord decides the length of your days, no one else, the Lord alone. We are not given a moment more or a moment less. Let's read on from verse 3. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. It's Like he couldn't wait. He just had to get onto it and get him. Then he imprisoned him, placed him under a guard of four squads. Now think about this. Four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. See, if if the Jews were pleased with the death of James, how much more so if their leader, Peter, was slain? But Herod wasn't taking any chances. You've got to remember, twice before, Peter... Had been in prison and somehow he'd escaped on both occasions. This time Herod ordered 16 soldiers to guard Peter. You've got to remember, these aren't pussies. Okay? The, the, these are Roman soldiers. They are highly trained, and if their prisoner escapes, who dies? They do. Right? That's the situation. I want you to get your head around this. They operated in four. Six hourly shifts around the clock. At any one time, Peter was chained between two soldiers and another two stood guard at the entrance to his cell. Is there a word that's coming to mind for you? There is for me. Hopeless. Isn't there? I mean, you think about Peter's situation. At first glance, it would appear that Peter was without hope. His trial and execution seemed imminent, yet Peter, as we shall see, was at peace. You see, I think he'd learnt that lesson. I think he knew his days were numbered. He he knew who held his future. He knew who was Lord. See, Jesus had told Peter that he would die as an old man on a Roman cross. Maybe he was thinking about that. Maybe he wasn't thinking about it at all. Maybe he was just sitting there thinking, oh, God is sovereign over all. God's got it all under control. Let me say to you today, we've got to do exactly the same thing. We really do. In times of crisis, in times of calm, wherever we are, we rest. We do. We rest in the knowledge that God, not our circumstances, is in control. Let me say that to you today. Whatever you're going through, whatever is the big deal for you at the moment, because let's face it, that's what life is about, isn't it? It's kind of one, it almost comes in waves. It's one thing to deal with after another. Whatever you're going through, God is in control, not your circumstances. I want you to notice verse 5. Verse 5 is the turning point of this story. But the church prayed very earnestly for him, which I have to say I find quite remarkable. I mean, I I have no doubt the church prayed earnestly for James in the days before. Their prayers were not answered, I guess, as they would have liked. James died, Herod had him killed. When Peter was imprisoned, how did the church react? Well, they gathered for prayer and they prayed earnestly. Now, I want you to notice the Greek word that that Luke chooses to use here is this word ektenos. It means they prayed without ceasing, intently, fervently, and it comes from a root v- verb which means to stretch out your hand with every muscle straining. I want to show a photo of a runner, you know, running the hundred meters, and they're just stretching at the end to get over the line. And the name of the painting was ektenos. It's a great image, isn't it? Straining with every part of their being. You know, I think sometimes when we get together for prayer, people will say things like, oh, I really love this time. It's so, it's so kind of gentle and quiet and I can just rest in this lovely time of prayer. Prayer often is not like that. When Jesus prayed earnestly on the night that he was betrayed, he was so stressed about what was happening that it says he was sweating blood. His capillaries were bursting. He was sweating blood as he prayed. God, there's got to be another way. Please, there's got to be another way. And I think it was like that. Like They were straining every muscle. God, James has just been killed. Surely we're not going to lose Peter as well. Ektenos, they were straining with everything they had they weren't mucking around they were straining in prayer and they believed so completely in the power of god in the power of prayer that they gave it all they had knowing that god may well allow peter to die as james had but they prayed anyway let me say to today in times of crisis when we wonder what to do the answer is always pray pray we simply talked to God about what is happening. I mean, often there's very practical things that we're to do as well, but we must pray. We must bring our concerns as the one who could turn the impossible around before our very eyes. You know, I was amazed to discover that the words which we translate as prayer in English, when you look in the scriptures, appear 4,310 times. 4,000 plus times. And when you take just a very small section of Scripture, say the Gospel of Matthew, and you ask yourself, what does Matthew teach us about prayer? You'll find in the narrative, Jesus tells us to pray in so many, if not all, situations. Let me run through a few of them. When facing enemies, we all face enemies, don't we? We face enemies from time to time. Jesus said, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do love for your enemies. And he said, and pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. You know, I think there are some some people from brothers and sisters living in Iraq at the moment who are probably struggling with that verse. As their families are being shot and beheaded and tortured and mutilated for their faith in Christ. That's a tough verse. Love your enemies and pray for them. When facing sickness, Jesus prayed for the sick and they were healed. When facing a lost world, desperately in need of the grace of God, Jesus said, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into the harvest. When Jesus was overwrought with tiredness, he went off alone and prayed. When Jesus hung out with a whole bunch of little kids, which seemed to be quite often because it seemed to really irritate the disciples, he prayed for them. And bless them. When they were in need, Jesus said, ask your heavenly father. He knows what you need and he always gives good gifts. When Jesus was speaking about the hardship of the end times, he said, pray that it will not be in the middle of winter. And when Jesus was facing the the greatest challenge of his life, his impending arrest, trial and and, and crucifixion, as I said, he went into a quiet place and prayed. prayed. And that's just the incidents from Matthew's gospel. There are 4,000 other verses I could point you to. Is it any wonder that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, Rejoice always. Rejoice. Be thankful. Be happily thankful always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. That is tough, isn't it? When suddenly one of our family members is struck down with cancer, very hard, isn't it, to say, Lord, I thank you for this? When unexpectedly we lose our job and we get knockback after knockback after knockback, it's very hard to say, Lord, thank you. As I've said to you many times over the years, in those circumstances, you have a choice. Will I be a victim or will I be a student? Will I say, Lord, what are you teaching me in this? I'm going to thank you for this hardness, this hardship, these hard times. What are you teaching me here? When the church faced a crisis, when their leader Peter was imprisoned and facing execution, the church prayed. Let me read to you the story from God's word. It won't be up on the screen. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he said, Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realise it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street and then the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do. To me, And when he realised this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where there were many gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. And when she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter's standing at the door. I love that about the Bible. I love that. You read the other religious texts out there? And everything's miraculous. This is so earthy, isn't it? This is so real. I mean, why on earth didn't the angel just go, shazam? And Peter goes, boop, and appears here. I mean, you think about the story. The angel's tapping him. Wake up, mate. Wake up. Quick. Quick. As though the angel has to rush. Quick. Come on, get dressed. Get your shoes on. Come on. You'll need a coat. Put your coat on. It's freezing out there. I think mean, it's so earthy. And then they come to the door. Isn't it just typical of a, a young girl to be so excited that she comes to the door, goes and runs off? Peter's at the door. Peter's out there going, Just open the door, for goodness sake. Anyway, at dawn, there was a great. Meanwhile, Peter's knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down, and he told them how the Lord had led them out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said, and then he went to another place. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him, and when he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. And afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea, for a while, Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. The delegates, delegates won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, and an appointment with Herod was granted. And when the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes, sat on his throne, and made a speech to them. The people gave a great ovation, shouting, it's the voice of a god, not a man. And instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. I don't know if you've thought much about angels. For many people, they have no trouble in believing that angels did exist and did all the things written about in the scriptures. But when you ask them about whether angels are around today and whether they operate today and do anything, they're not kind of sure. They really can't imagine angels interacting with people in the 21st century as they did in Bible times. You now, the prophet Zechariah had some questions about angels. One night on the 15th of February, the text tells us that, was on the 15th of February, that's what it says, he had a vision. In the vision he saw a number of men on horses and he asked, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who was talking with him answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout all the earth. Angels. Their name means messenger. They are sent as a guard to surround and defend all who fear the Lord. That's what it says in Psalm 34. And there are heaps of them. There are heaps of them. In Revelation, the Apostle John writes, He saw and He heard the voices of, and I quote, thousands and millions of angels around the throne. You know, about the time that uh, Louise and I, our church was, you know, we were transitioning between Kevin Keegan's leadership and mine, and the church hadn't called me, and I don't think my name had even gone to, um, you know, to the church at this stage at all. I'm not sure it hadn't. Um, we were living down on Marks Road, down just down here at 108 Marks Road, and we had a. It was a couple of people. There was one guy who was over the road, and we had another man who I didn't recognise. But they actually stood outside the house in the early hours of, our mo- of the morning, yelling and screaming at us and abusing the pastor of that church up the road, and just hurling abuse and I won't go into all the details about what happened but um, God did some amazing things and this, um, this guy who was clearly demonised he reached up and he grabbed this quite a big branch on the tree and he just ripped it off in anger and we thought he had a gun and you know, we, we were under the bed hiding and we'd rung the police and everything and uh, anyway it turned out it was very spiritual because I, I just said quietly from the lounge room I, I'd snuck out to the lounge room and looking over the lounge, looking through the Venetians. And I thought, this is spiritual. And I quietly said, I didn't yell it out, I just said, in the name of Jesus, sit down. And it was like something just went whack like that in his chest. And he flew backwards and landed on his bum on the road. And so I just thought, man, this is spiritual. And I just w- went out. When I got out there, he'd gone. and. Louisa's at the window of our bedroom. I said, where'd he go? And She goes, oh, he went down the side of the house. And he just disappeared. And then suddenly this bloke, who had been a raving madman a minute before, walked up past me with a briefcase like this, as though he didn't even see me, and he walked down the street. And anyway, then the cops pull up. And I went, he's down there at the park, this guy. Anyway, the next day... Because we've had kind of things like this happen over the years. I thought, no, what we're going to do is the Bible talks about angels protecting our property and we're the legal leaseholders of this. We don't own this property, but we are the legal tenants. So I walked the boundary quietly. I didn't make a big deal of it. I just walked the boundary and I prayed, God, would you just put angels to protect this boundary? And the next night, auto bins are out. And we hear this noise coming down the street, and there's four or five guys coming down the street, and they're tipping over every auto bin out on the street, and I thought, oh, it's going to be a mess to clean up, and we're looking at them out the window, and they came to the corner of our property, and four or five of these guys, a group of them just went They walked across the road, tipped the bin over over the road, (laughs) walked down, came back, and walked down the street. My goodness, there were angels guarding our property that night. I really believe this. I, I, I've seen it. I saw it happen there. There was another time when long before we were married, I was on my peas. And you know that stage where you, you get your peas and every green light is the start of a race. You know, Josh knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> No, you don't. I'm sure you wouldn't know. But you know when you're sitting there, it's just this subtle little... Or in my car, it was kind of... But <laughs> we're sitting there. Now, for those who know Sydney, this is Eastern Valley Way as it comes up just above Roseville Bridge, the Ringer Expressway there. We're sitting there at the lights. Louise is in the car, and there's this guy next to me, and I'm just, just looking at the lights. And the light goes green, where I would normally just drop the clutch and take off. And it was in that moment, I can only describe it, it was like this blanket just came on me, and I couldn't move. And I was just sitting there, and this big semi-trailer went through the red light. And I just thought, wow, that felt like someone stopped me driving forward then. Because I I was not looking, and there was no reason why I would delay, because I was waiting to go, and I think... Gee, if we'd gone, bam, that truck would hit us and you'd have no one playing in your band. (laughs) Or standing up here talking to you. I've got a feeling that maybe an angel, last angel story, okay? Last angel story for today. One night when we were living on 25 acres before we came here out at Hartley, you know, it's a really lonely kind of dark place, I'm out there and... The older kids were at their grandparents and Louise was working late and Geordie was home on his own and Geordie was a little baby and he's he was in lying on our bed, in the middle of our bed, and I'm out in the lounge room reading or something and then I hear this noise and Geordie is screaming his head off. I've never heard him ever be like this. It was like he was being eaten. He was screaming and I came into the room and I've kind of... <laughs> sadly had some experience with demons in the past where you just come in, you just can feel this evil presence. And I did what I've always done, which is just straight away pray and tell this demon to get out in the name of Jesus. And Geordie suddenly just, he's, he's just, you know, he's still asleep, but he's just screaming and he's just calming down as a little baby. So I'm sitting on the bed with my right hand on Geordie, just praying for him. And I suddenly become aware that there's a man in the room sitting on the other side of the bed, and he's got his left hand on Geordie, and he's big. I mean, he was 30% bigger than me. Big guy. And I'm sitting there on the bed going. (laughs) And this, he's muscular. He's just just sitting there like that. And it's just, I didn't hear it, but it was just in my head. Word just went. That's Jordan's angel, and Jordy's just oh, he's at peace. And I naively and stupidly went to put my hand on him, and he disappeared like that. We don't see them very often, but every now and then something happens, and you think, yeah, no angels. They are a gift from God. The point is I have no doubt that angels are very real and active from my own experience. But don't believe something because someone tells you. Don't don't believe something because of someone's experience. Don't ever do that. Believe something because God's word says it. I've included in your bulletin, or not not actually on your seat, this little thing. I just put this together from... um, Joe I. Packer's Concise Theology. Right? There's just some good stuff in there about what the Bible says about angels. So I would encourage you to take that home and if you're thinking, gee, what, what can I do to just learn some stuff from God's word, just go through it. I mean, you could maybe do it in your Bible study group. Just spend an evening looking up the verses. You'll find it very encouraging just to say, what does the Bible say about, about angels? Believe something because God's word says it. Right? The same angels who surrounded and protected Peter and Paul and all of the brothers and sisters of the Lord who came before us surround and protect us as well. Rejoice in that. There's nothing to fear in that. Rest. Rest in that. So let's do a quick little summary for today. <clears throat> Number one, Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him into a life of suffering. And it's only there we'll find true life. And we just need to ask, is there a movement in my life towards more comfort and prosperity or is there a movement towards greater service, greater sacrifice, and as a result, more suffering, more hardship, more challenge, more giving of yourself for others? And is the overarching prayer of your life less of me and more of you? Number two, the Lord has numbered your days on this earth. You are not given a moment more or a moment less. Rest in that. Take comfort in that. Rejoice in that. Know the Lord holds your life safe in the palm of his hand. Number three, in times of crisis, when we wonder what we're to do, the answer is always pray. You do other things as well. Go up to the emergency department if you've got chest pain. Go and get your antibiotics. Pray. Pray, 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 pray. The overwhelming teaching of the scriptures is that prayer is the single most powerful force in the hands of people. Jesus' death and resurrection has opened the way for us to God. There's now no barrier between us and God because our sin has been dealt with. Prayer is a great mystery. It really is. Yet God commands us to pray and for some reason God is moved by our prayers. And finally, angels surround us. They are sent by God to guard and protect us. They watch us and at times God sends them to speak with us. We can rest in that truth as well. We can rejoice in that. And I believe there's great peace for us in that truth. Let's pray. Lord, we're aware today that there are many people in our church family here who are going through difficult trials at the moment. Lord, we continue to pray for those people and that you would stand with them, that you would move them through what can appear to be a valley of the shadow of death, that you will move them through that valley in your time. Lord, I pray very specifically that you would Make them aware that it's actually you who is walking with them, carrying them through this dark place. Lord, I pray for relief, that you would relieve the suffering, that you would bring them through it, that you would be their strength and you would encourage them. And in the midst of the darkness, that you would be the one who provides a supernatural peace, a peace that doesn't make sense in the midst of what we're going through. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful narration, this story of of what happened so long ago to just a group of your followers and how you miraculously saved Peter. May that story be an encouragement to us. And Lord, I pray as we try to live in the tension of not really knowing why you do one thing and not another at times. But Lord, we rest in your sovereignty. Lord, I pray a blessing upon everyone here today. In Jesus' name. Amen.